The following program is proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. Each year, more than 60 people die and more than 600 are seriously injured in fatigue-related crashes in New South Wales. Fatigue-related crashes are almost three times as likely to be fatal than crashes not involving fatigue. Don't trust your tired self. After the great feedback we received following the first and second interviews conducted with New South Wales Police Traffic Sergeant Mick Todd, where I asked and he answered a raft of questions about little-known or misunderstood road rules, we thought it would be a good idea to follow with a third Q&A session to answer more of the community's questions and queries surrounding road safety and New South Wales road rules, which we didn't have the opportunity to address in previous sessions. So today I have an extensive and diverse diverse range of questions that have been sent in or suggested by our listeners and yet again to give us the answers to these questions in accordance with New South Wales laws. It brings me great pleasure to be hosting Traffic Sergeant Mick Todd in the Tuam FM studio. Sergeant Todd, it's great to have you back on a new episode of Road Safety in Focus. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's always a pleasure. Now, we'll get stuck straight into these questions because, uh, like I said, there is an extensive list and I'm sure you agree. Uh, yes, there is. Yes. <laughs> so starting with question one, it's widely understood that parking offences usually attract fines but no demerit points. Is that necessarily true in all cases and which types of parking offences do attract demerit points? You're right in the sense that they do uh, attract a fine all your parking offences, but there are certain parking offences which do have uh, some points attached and it can range up to two points for certain offences and um, these range from parking in you know, disability zone if you don't have a permit to school zones which are the two-point offences and then stopping near an intersection with traffic lights or pedestrian crossings, they too um, attract points in addition to the fine that's involved. All right, so it's good for people to be aware of these things. I mean, we briefly covered some of those parking offences when we spoke about school zones, but I'm sure there are probably people out there who didn't know about the others that you've just mentioned, such as in disability zones and whatnot. Question two, can a driver be fined for driving under the speed limit? They can, um, but it's saying that it depends on the circumstances. So Mm -hmm. I'll give an example that... um, So if you're travelling at 60 k's an hour in a 70 zone, that's um, fine and reasonable. It's safe for the speed of the road. But if you were to say um, in a 100 kilometre an hour zone and you're travelling at 50, there's a risk that a collision could occur just because of the the speed difference. Um, It would be a a negligent driving offence, yeah. Okay. It's all about a risk to safety of other drivers not being aware of 
because of the lower speed than what you should be travelling. Because if somebody's driving at, let's say, 70 k's an hour and then they assuming that everybody else on the road is travelling at 70 kilometres per hour or thereabouts and then they arrive at a point where there's somebody driving at 50 or 40 k's and they're not expecting it, then that could pose a risk. Yeah, you're right. It's all about risk to other drivers. That's right. right. Okay, that's interesting. Now, what do the road rules state about tailgating or not leaving a safe distance between one's own vehicle and the vehicle in front? So in this case, there is a particular fence for driving behind another vehicle too closely. And it's all about um, being able to stop safely if the car in front of you was to stop suddenly. Uh, And again, it's all relative to the speed limit of the road and the distance you travel behind the other vehicle. Say 40 kilometres an hour, you might leave a less distance, whereas... Uh, say 60 and above, you really should be leaving a lot more distance. Again, it's all about being able to stop safely behind that other vehicle if it were to stop all of a sudden. Mm. So in trying to determine what is actually tailgating, how close would somebody need to be travelling to the car in front of them? Again, this is an example. If it's a 60 kilometre an hour zone, if you're sitting one to two metres behind the car in front of you, I would think that's a bit too close given it if that car were to stop suddenly for any reason, yeah. the um, reaction time needed to stop with that car in front is, is quite quick and, and often and more often than not, that won't happen. So mm. we do suggest there's always that three-second gap that's a, as a guide, but obviously we can't always yeah. abide by that. That's right. But um, it's, it's all about just keeping a safe distance to be able to stop. Right. Now, giving way appears to cause confusion for some drivers, particularly at roundabouts. To help clear up some of that confusion, can you please explain the rules regarding signalling and giving way at roundabouts? And this is a question that we received from a number of our listeners, actually, because it seems to be such a problematic area for many drivers. Um, yeah, a lot of roundabouts in the area, so yeah. I can understand that. So uh, for your roundabouts, um, you're required to signal if you're going to go left or right within the roundabout. Mm-hmm. So there's four ways you can go. If you're going left, signal left. If you're going right, signal right if you're going straight there's no need to signal initially however when you're leaving the roundabout you are required to indicate when you are leaving that roundabout that's just again as a courtesy to the other drivers behind you and also in front of you to let them know what you're doing Um, and and generally everyone gives way to the right in the roundabout however in the rules you only have to give way to the vehicle that's in the roundabout first so it's a common misconception that one so regardless of which way they're coming, anybody who's already in that roundabout needs to be given way. Otherwise, if let's say you're sitting at a roundabout, if you've approached first and there's a car coming from the right but it hasn't entered the roundabout yet, is it your right of way? It would be. If, if you've entered the roundabout first, yeah. obviously when it's safe to do so, then technically, according to the rules, yeah. you have the right of way. Because this is where you find a lot of drivers, they may actually stop and wait for the vehicle, the approaching vehicle from the right, because they think, well, they're coming from the right, so I need to give them way, even though I got here first. And this is where you find a lot of just people sitting there at the roundabout, not moving. Yes. Even though they could have gone. All right. So that's good to clear up, because I think this is one of the issues that causes the most misconception as to who goes first and that whole giving way to the right thing. Because at some point I started to believe or started to think maybe the road rules were changed in recent years and it's no longer giving way to the right and it's more about who was there first. But now that you say it that way, I can understand how the two work together. 
it surprised me the first time I read that too because the way I was taught, you give way to the right, but the rules say whoever's in there first, that's the person who has right of way. Yeah. Now, you mentioned signalling at the roundabout. If somebody is going straight even, they need to signal upon exiting the roundabout. Which way are they signalling? So if you're in the roundabout, you need to signal to the left Mm -hmm. to indicate when you're leaving the roundabout. Right. And does that attract any demerit points if people don't do it? Because I'm sure it's no surprise to you that a lot of people either don't or forget to signal upon exiting a roundabout. There, there isn't a, a particular offence for it. And yes, there is a fine and demerit points. Oh, wow. Um, but it's more about um, courtesy to other drivers, just to let them know yeah. what you're doing. Otherwise, um, could pose a danger. If you're going to turn yeah. and the others aren't realising that, yeah. or if you're going straight ahead, it's just um, about letting other drivers know what's going on. Yeah, that's right. Because sometimes the other drivers can sit there for a long time waiting for a break in the traffic to pass and if they're always thinking that somebody's doing a full turn rather than exiting the roundabout, they can just sit there for no reason. Yeah. All right. So when we come to talking about failing to indicate when turning at an intersection, do the same rules apply? Yes. So again, um, not indicating there are fines and demerit points involved. There's an increased risk of um, a collision if you're not signalling your attentions to other drivers to you're allowing them to to prepare and react to what you're going to do. Again, it's around courtesy and, and letting other road users know what you want to do just for safety. So is a driver then allowed to overtake a vehicle on its left? Yes, you can. But in saying that, it can only be done in certain circumstances. So according to the rules, um, it can only be done on a multi-lane road when it's safe to do so in a marked lane. Or if the person is turning right at an intersection or into a driveway, provided it is safe to do so. Okay. Most of the times that would be through a, what you would think would be a parking lane on a road. So I think the general rule that people have heard is that you should never overtake a car on its left. You're right, yes. Yeah. Okay, now to the next question. Other than giving way at stop, give way and traffic lights, in which situations might a driver get into trouble for not giving way to another vehicle? Um, so a few examples of this one, and I do see these quite often, which involve collisions, um, and they're when you enter or leave a car park or a driveway. I see that quite a bit, and that more often than not involves pedestrians, which is quite dangerous. Yes. Also, when you're entering a road, merging from a park position, so there'll be, if you're parked on the left-hand side of the road, you merge to the right to enter the, the marked lane. Um, you also have to give way. And then when changing lanes as well, so when there's a lane that's ending, and the lane that's ending, if you're in that lane, you have to give way to the lane that you're intending to enter. Most people think, oh, I'm the one that's in front. Mm. I have right away when that's not correct. If you want to go into another lane because your lane is ending, mm. you have to give way to cars in that lane first and do so safely. Right. Weren't there two types of mergers that people do when their lane is ending? The one where you've got the lines, the broken lines at the end of that ending lane. That's right. And there's one where there are no lines marked in that ending lane. Yes. So the rules might be a little bit different according to which one you're using. You're right. And in the second example you gave there, there's not too many of those around. I know on North Terrace in Bankstown there is an example of that where it's quite a large lane and in that case whoever's in front has right of way and I do also know that on Southern Cross Drive in in Botany Mm. again a similar situation where the the lanes 
merging or coming together from two into one. And in, in that case, you do, or whoever's in front has the right of way. So the, yeah, you're right, there are two types, but the second again is, is very rare. So it's still good to know that there is a difference between the two because depending on which one it is, then you may either need to give way or you may be the one who has right of way. Yes. So in that case, it can cause all sorts of problems if you don't know, um, if you're just cutting off traffic and thinking you're the one who's allowed to pass first. And that um, the zipper line, which you, you mentioned that, that is a giveaway line. Uh, you see those at intersections. So that's that's the guide that I use um, if you're in that lane. That's a good way of remembering yeah. it because it can be confusing to think which one is it. All right. Now, what are some common factors in road accidents on freeways and motorways? And I asked this particular question because I know that road accidents on freeways and motorways can be some of the most destructive. You're right, Yes. So what are some of the common factors that lead to those kinds of road accidents that we see on these types of roads? Uh, the number one that I've got here is speed. The freeways or motorways, the speed limit is, is usually 100 kilometres an hour and plus. So collisions obviously, or more often than not, involve a, a higher speed than normal. And secondly, fatigue. Usually freeways and highways are, are for travelling great distances between places and more often than not people might be a little bit tired coming to or from work or going on holidays as a few examples yeah. so being tired and fatigue does play a big role in that as well and I find sometimes because they're multi-lane roads quite large roads as well people have some issues sometimes with changing lanes on a freeway and at such high speeds if they're not merging into a lane at the right speed that can be also quite problematic. Yeah, you're right, yeah. But it's just being um, aware of the other drivers and, and what they're doing as well. Is it illegal under the road rules to temporarily park in a no parking or bus zone if the driver does not exit from or walk away from the vehicle? And the answer for that one is yes. I do see this quite a bit where someone will stop in a bus zone to drop someone off or pick someone up, but according to the rules, um, you, you cannot stop or park in a bus zone unless you are driving a bus or sometimes a community bus. You'll see those floating around as well. All right. So yeah. they would be allowed to stop in that zone? Yes, yeah. But um, Meet the criteria. You're right, yes. All right. What in terms of the uh, no parking? Because I think we've spoken a little bit about no parking zones and the fact that they are a bit different from no stopping zones in the sense that you are actually able to stop in a no parking zone. So if we elaborate a little further about parking and what constitutes parking in a no-parking zone, what would you not be allowed to do in a no-parking zone? In a no-parking zone, um, you're allowed to be with your car for three minutes, Mm -hmm. drop off passengers, pick up passengers. That's the idea around that. No stopping is uh, flat out, no stopping at all. But um, you often see no-parking zones in and around train stations and it's exactly for that principle of uh, a short-term stop to pick up or drop off passengers. Would it make any difference to that definition regarding whether the driver actually stays in the vehicle or steps out of the vehicle? You have to remain in a short vicinity of the car. You you can't wander off to uh, go to the shops or anything like that. It's purely for the purpose of a real short-term stop. They call it the kiss and ride principle, saying goodbye to someone or picking someone up saying hello. That makes perfect sense now. Can a driver be fined for letting out one of their passengers at a set of traffic lights on red 
or in any situation where they're not moving but are in the line of traffic. So there's no specific offence for that. I've seen it before. However, there is an offence if the vehicle is moving. So if you're moving at a speed and you let someone out or someone gets out, there is a, a particular offence for that. But again, if they're going to get out at a set of traffic lights, you have to do so safely because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Other cars might be turning if you're in a multi-lane road. Uh, motorbikes coming through uh, lane filtering to the front of the intersection, a few things like that that you have to be aware of if that's going to happen. Right. So if somebody, let's say, in the middle of the street, they got to a point, they slowed down, somebody opened the door and got out, even if they're not at a traffic light, there would still be no issue with uh, them doing that? If the car's moving, it's a flat out, you can't exit the car. It has to be stopped or stationary for that to happen. Again, it's all around safety of the person getting out. wouldn't even be considered obstruction of traffic if they did that in the middle of the road where they're not supposed to be stopping. Again, it'd have to be in an appropriate place Mm -hmm. at a set of traffic lights at a red light um, where the traffic isn't moving around them. You just have to pick your spot if that's going to happen. I've seen it happen also at crossings sometimes when somebody's waiting at a crossing, waiting for pedestrians to cross and then they may let out one of their passengers as they're waiting for the people to cross the road. Now, is a driver of a vehicle driving or waiting in a turn left only lane allowed to merge into a different lane? So the answer of this one is yes. And as long as it's uh, before the intersection, because a lot of intersections will have lane markings and signs telling you what you can and can't do. So if you're turning left and you decide to, you want to go straight, as long as you enter that straight lane before entering the intersection, that's fine. All right. So provided that Let's say you were intending first to turn right and then at the last minute you changed your mind and thought, no, I want to continue straight. There's too much traffic here. You can do that before you get to the intersection. Correct. But once you've actually at the intersection, this is the point where you can no longer change your mind and take a different lane. That's right, yeah. You're obliged by the um, the road markings to yeah. continue with what the lane says once you've reached that intersection or entered that intersection. Yeah. But before that prior, it's... um not a problem to move into that other lane again as long as it's safe to do so. Interesting. Okay, so what do driving laws state about using apps or features in a built-in car audio-visual screen? So it's an offence to uh, to drive with a, a moving image displayed on the front in the inbuilt displays. Um, it's like your, your videos or okay. uh, TV shows. I have, I have seen it. You're playing YouTube. Yep. Um, the screen cannot be moving. In saying that, you might have some monitors in the headrests for your, your kids yeah. or anyone else in the back. Um, if those have a, um, a TV image or video playing, that's fine, as long as it's not on the front console. Uh, so does that cover or exclude GPS navigation? Because in a sense, that's a moving screen. Yeah, so GPS is fine. Okay. It's uh, more for your videos and, and stuff like that. All right. Now, the other thing that I wanted to clarify in terms of these built-in car audio-visual screens is how legal they are for provisional drivers to use because we've already ascertained on previous episodes that they are restricted from using a mobile phone device. They're restricted from using Bluetooth devices, any kind of, even GPS navigation on the phone is off limits to them. So if they were using a built-in system like this, to use as navigation device, would that be allowable for them? I would think so, yes, yeah. All right. Now, 
Are drivers legally allowed to record a conversation with police during a police traffic stop? So there's no issues with this occurring, but um, obviously prior to touching your phone, the vehicle must be in park with the handbrake on. We prefer people not to have their phones or anything in their hands when we speak to them. It's a safety issue for us. Um, in, in saying that, we do record most, if not all, of our traffic stops with um, body-worn what video cameras and in-car videos. There's not a problem with that, but... Mm. We do have safety risks and concerns around people holding phones while we're interacting with them. So they would need to obviously tell you of their intention to do so and have their car in park before they actually do that. Sometimes they, they could put it in there if they want to record audio only, if they put yep. the phone in the console. But if they're going to start putting a video in our face, you just don't know what the phone can be used for. Yeah, we just ask right. that people just don't have anything in their hands. So again, it's all about our safety. But it's not illegal. No, I no, guess. not illegal, no. The bottom line, that it's it's not an illegal thing to do. No, and you're right there. Yep. All right. So then we have another question regarding police officers. Are police officers subject to the same road rules as everyone else or do they have exemptions to do certain things that are deemed illegal for other drivers? So, yes, we are obliged to abide by the road rules as we drive around. Um, you are correct in that, but uh, we do have an exemption and... That's um, when it's reasonable or for law enforcement purposes or with the red and blue lights and a siren on. So you might see a police officer driving and talking on a mobile phone. Mm. It might be for an operational purpose that we can't use the police radio. We need to speak with someone to ask a question or let them know what's going on. So you, you might see that. Mm-hmm. Or the, the most you'll see is um, the cars going through an intersection with a red light and the red and blue lights are going with the siren. So we do have an exemption under the road rules uh, for that. It's important that you clear that up because these are a lot of things that um, have been brought up by people in the community that they've seen these things happen or, you know, police, they're supposed to be leading by example. How come they get to do this and how come they get to do that? So when you explain it that way, that there are certain operational matters that require you sometimes to do these things, it's not an abuse of power. This is, I guess, what I'm trying to get across. The most common one we, we do get is, oh, I saw a police officer driving whilst on the phone, and more often than not, there is a, a legitimate law enforcement reason why we've had to answer the call or even make a call. Right. Is it legal for police to engage in high-speed pursuits? And in which situations may police need to engage in a high-speed pursuit? So yes, it is legal for us to engage in these pursuits. We obviously prefer not, not to, to have to, um, but yes, we can. And it's more often than not to um, catch up to or pursue another vehicle that's travelling at or above the speed limit. Um, in saying that, the pursuits are monitored by a radio supervisor and sometimes by the um, police helicopter mm-hmm. above. So there's always someone monitoring and making sure that we're doing it safely and in accordance with our guidelines, so to say. And um more often than not, these are terminated due to the risk of the public. Hmm. That's a, one of the big considerations with high-speed pursuits yeah. is the, the risk or danger to the public if it was to continue. So these are among the safety considerations that you would make when making a decision as to whether or not engage in a high-speed pursuit with somebody, looking around at the area, how built up it is, how busy it is, uh, what's the likely risk to other people that are using the roads? Yeah, you're right. And, and we take into account the the weather, the time of day, the traffic mm. on the road, and, and of course, the speed of the other vehicle if we do decide to pursue it or 
if we do, and and it might get terminated because of those reasons, the mm. the risk far outweighs uh, the benefit in those cases. So you wouldn't really decide to engage in a high speed pursuit. Let's say if you know you just saw somebody committing a minor traffic offence, it would have to be something that's quite major. A lot of pursuits start from when someone fails to stop for us. Like we oh, usually right. put the the lights on or yeah. call the siren, and, and they just. Um, they don't stop, mm. and that's how a lot of them start. Not because of uh, we identify that, that they're travelling at a, a really high speed. It's we we want to stop someone for a minor offence, and they decide not to stop. Oh, wow! Yeah. And usually that's a bit of a giveaway that they've got something bigger to hide than just you know something minor that they're doing. If they don't want to stop, yeah, you're right. So uh, most of the times to do with um, license issues, they might not have a license. Uh, it's for a range of reasons. So it's interesting, though. A lot, of, a lot of the times we try to stop someone is for random testing, not because they've done anything wrong. It's just we're doing our job, breath testing, drug testing, checking licences, just a routine check. So yeah, a lot of times people this will, but weird. we do get the ones that, that will not stop. For and us. again, that's probably why they don't stop, because they don't want to be caught out. You're right, yes. <laughs> so now we move to the next question. Uh, how common is it for police to stop or cite someone for lapsed car registration? It happens quite a lot, to be honest. Uh, a lot of our cars are fitted with um, cameras that read number plates and part of the, them reading number plates, it tells us information about their registration status. Mm-hmm. So the information is fairly quick. It's given to us and takes photos while we drive around and lets us know if something's out of registration. And I think this has become quite an issue, probably not a police issue as much as it is a road authorities issue. People are more inclined to forget to renew their red joe since they scrapped out the stickers yeah, you're on right. their cars. Yep. Now people don't have a visual cue yes. of when their red joe is going to expire and many people just go about their days and they don't even realise that their red joe has expired. And that's a common answer we get when asked if they knew if it was expired and um, they said, well, I forgot or didn't even know. So then is it likely that someone has renewed their rego, but there is no evidence of it on police records or road authority systems? Oh. Have you ever found anybody who said to you, oh, I've, I've, I've actually renewed my rego, but you can't find any record of it anywhere? Um, most of the time not. In my experience, I've had one person where I've had to do, or oh, there was an error with the system. And in that case, I did make the follow-up inquiries and found that it was an error. So no action was taken, obviously. Right. Um, but in saying that, our, our systems are linked to the RMS and we do get live data on our in-car computers. So most of the time the information provided is correct. Right. Now, let's say they were able to provide you with receipts or some sort of documentation to show that they have actually gone through the process of renewing the vehicle. They've got a, a safety check paper. They've got their green slip that's paid and there's a receipt to provide you with that. They've actually paid the registration fees. It's just for some reason or another, it hasn't shown up on the system. You would waive the penalty in in that circumstance? I think it'd be up to the officer to conduct some inquiries in relation to the documents provided. I really should check because if someone's presenting some some documents or some evidence to say that the the registration's been paid, it would be negligent if we didn't follow up on that. Yeah. I mean, electronic and digital systems are quite efficient, but they're not foolproof. There is a room for error within those systems. So it would only be reasonable to follow up the matter. It it, it would be, yeah. 
All right, so how might someone go about appealing a traffic-related fine? This is one that we get a lot that um, I don't believe I was doing what I was booked for. How would I go about appealing this? Usually if you get a fine in the mail, it'll give you information on how to to do that. Yeah. There are review processes that are in place through the um, to the police. If it was a police-issued fine or a camera-issued fine, you can also seek leniency. And again, you can also elect to have the matter heard at court if you don't believe you've done what you've done. So there are avenues for people to go about. Yes, yeah. They believe that they've received a fine for something they haven't done. Now, also, if someone had a negative experience during a police traffic stop, how may they go about lodging a complaint? Like you may hear sometimes people say, oh, you know, I was stopped and this police officer was really rude to me. They spoke to me in a way they shouldn't have. You know, what can I do? How do I go about making a complaint? So the main way that you can do that is to either call or write a letter to the um, police station or the command mm-hmm. where the officer is from. The officer should really be telling you uh, their station that they're from mm-hmm. when they're dealing with you on the roadside. So that's an option to speak to a, a supervisor or someone higher if you've got any complaints or issues about the interaction with the police officer. Uh, but again, in saying that, more often than not, the traffic stops are recorded on our body cameras and, and in-car video. So there are review processes that we do look at when right. um, these complaints are made. Okay. So in that case, if they are going to make that complaint to the police station, they would be then within the law to ask for that police officer's name. Is there any other information that drivers may need to make that complaint or is it just... Just uh, the officer is, really should be giving you their, their name, rank and station. Um, okay. That's all that we need to provide. Mm-hmm. We don't need to provide telephone numbers. We often get asked for, I want your ID number. We don't give that out. Yeah. Um, just the name, rank and station is enough to identify the officer if there is a complaint about how you were treated or all spoken right. to. This is why I particularly ask that question in that much detail because we don't want to give the impression that they can interrogate the police officer for information that the police officer is not required to give by law. That's right. Very American asking for a badge number. Yeah. You see it on, yes. on movies and TV. So That's right. Yeah. So just the basic details will do. Now, why does it take three years or more to get one demerit point removed from a person's driving record? This is somebody who posed that question to us thinking, one point, why do I need to wait three years to get that point removed, that demerit point removed from my driving record? Is there a particular rhyme or reason behind having this particular period of time? It's a good question and I'm I've often thought that myself. It seems quite excessive. Yeah. Um, but the answer is, I don't know. Mm. It's governed by the RMS, so... That's a question for the RMS. Yep. Then I'll have to direct that question towards somebody at the RMS to get a clear-cut answer. Um, because, you know, even if you do have sometimes just the one demerit point on your driving record, that can affect all sorts of things when it comes to renewing your rego, your green slip prices, um any of the things that require you to have a clean driving record, it does, basically. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and for three years, that's going to happen. Yes, so. yes. Now, heading to the last of our questions, as more of an open-ended question, 
How much of a factor does driver frustration or desperation play in drivers engaging in risk-taking behaviours? And I'm sure you've seen a lot in your line of work. I see it daily. I see videos of it daily, reports of it daily. So it is a big factor and we all need to get somewhere that we're going and we, we always try to get there as quick as we can. Yep. We often try to merge into a spot that's maybe not quite big enough or just big enough to fit in or or do things we normally wouldn't ordinarily do mm. because oh, we're in a rush to get somewhere or to be somewhere. I've seen some really horrendous things happen, especially I noticed during peak hour traffic when you know people are just at the end of the day, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're cranky, they just want to get home and you know forget about the day's work that they had. They do some really obnoxious things sometimes, like when they're driving. Yeah, and I see this as well. Like I'm, I finish work, I want to get home, and uh, I want to get home as quick as possible. But yeah, you, just, you do see a lot of things, and it does play play a part. Yeah, but um, we just got to do so safely and take into consideration everyone else's um, needs on the road. Yeah, a number of scenarios actually pop into my head as I think about the frustration and, and desperation factors. You notice it a lot when people, for example, are stopped at a, a red light, for example, that's taking ages to turn green, and they just don't want to wait anymore. So they're not willing to wait for the next phase to come in, and they, they're going to go on that red light. They don't care anymore. That They've waited for, you know, five, six minutes, <laughs> one set of traffic lights, and they're not waiting again. And you see that happen a lot on some of those traffic lights that are notorious for their horrible phasing. Yes. Not just in terms of driving in the line of traffic, but even like when it comes to parking, you see so many people, they'll ignore the fact that it's a bus zone. They'll ignore the fact that it's a no stopping sign because they need to get to this place right now. I have an appointment at this time. I need to make that appointment. I'm running late. I'm just going to be gone for 10 minutes. It doesn't really matter. And voila. Yeah, you're right. And that's a that's a common answer we get for um, if we do detect someone often late for an appointment or running late for work. Unfortunately, frustration and desperation will always be a part of our lives. I think so. Um, It's just about, you know, looking at the bigger picture sometimes and seeing what risks you're actually running to do the things that you're doing to save, you know, five minutes so you're not late for an appointment, what kind of risks you may be running, putting yourself and other people on the roads at risk. You're right, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is what it is. Now, Traffic Sergeant Mick Todd, again, you've wowed us with the answers and details you've provided in today's Q&A session. Thank you for both your time and the valuable contribution you've made to road safety in focus. It's been very educational and a very eye-opening experience. Not a problem. My pleasure. Thank you.
year, more than 60 people die and more than 600 are seriously injured in fatigue-related crashes in New South Wales. Fatigue-related crashes are almost three times as likely to be fatal than crashes not involving fatigue. Don't trust your tired self.